Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of speaking with the Chalcedon Foundation's president, Mark Rushduni. Mark Rushduni is, if you've guessed, the son of the very well-read, famous R.J. Rushduni, founder of sort of the modern version of theonomy, biblical law, that whole movement that the Canon Press sees itself certainly downstream and, and very grateful for those who came before us. The big announcement that we have for this, as we will get into right off the top of the episode, is that Chalcedon has partnered with Canon Plus, and we now feature 20 plus audiobooks from RJ Rushduni that are really fantastic. It's an awesome, awesome resource. And this is the kind of thing as I get on this intro every week and I push Canon Plus, these are the kinds of things that I'm excited about. We get to partner with incredible ministries like Calcedon and education hubs like Calcedon where because you guys are subscribing, we can go out and and make certain partnerships like this possible. So go check out the Rush Juni collection. I'm so excited about it. He's a fascinating author. He was applying that slogan that we love, all of Christ for all of life. He was applying it way back when. And so in that collection, you're going to find a wide variety of topics covered. And that is exactly what we love, not only at Canon Press, but especially at Canon Calls, uh, hopefully every one of you becoming more and more of a generalist every week. So without further ado, meet Mr. Mark Rushduty. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Mark Rushduni, president of Calcedon Foundation. Mr. Rushduni, thank you so much for giving me your time. You're very welcome, Jake. It's good to talk with you. So the uh, one of the reasons that, that I am having you on today is on Canon Plus. We now feature about 20 or so audiobooks, if I remember right, from the Calcedon Foundation, and, and they're all of your father, R.J. Rushduni. And so as just a, a way of introducing that collection of, of books, I wanted to talk about the Chalcedon Foundation. Uh, but maybe before we get there, could you introduce us, uh, or maybe the best way to do that would be to sort of introduce us to the Chalcedon Foundation's founder. Could you do that for us? Yes. Chalcedon is, an, we call it Christian Educational Foundation. It was started in 1965. I believe it may be the oldest Christian worldview organization around. Okay. Uh, it was certainly an innovative concept. People told my father that uh, he couldn't have an organization based upon ideas, that he <laughs> had to have some sort of a program. Back in the uh, 60s, he was told, uh, you need to have an anti-communist uh, organization. And my dad really wasn't interested in focusing his time and energy on uh, what he was against. Sure. He wanted to be for something, and he wanted to be for the kingdom of God. And he, he was a post-millennialist in his eschatology, so he believed that the kingdom of God was going to grow, as, as Isaiah said, of the increase of his government, there'd be no end. So he was definitely saying, this is where we have to be headed in our thinking, and therefore, what do we do about it? He introduced the idea of Christian reconstruction. He coined that term by which he meant not a political 
program, as many people have characterized it, but really it was the, the believer's responsibility in the face of, of evil and apostasy. And he believed that uh, the, the Christians should act in terms of the lordship of, of Jesus Christ now, beginning in their private lives, and that he believed by the power of the Holy Spirit that would one day see the enlargement of the kingdom of God. And that's really interesting. You mentioned just about maybe there were pressures at the time to sort of go in an anti-communism route. One of the questions that I had planned was sort of what was the sort of the landscape uh, I was thinking in terms of like maybe Christian thought or ministries, but also that introduces a very interesting, at least like a political landscape of where your father started. Could you tell us a little bit more about that landscape of when he started? Was he was he reacting to something initially uh, that he saw that he didn't like and he needed to sort of blaze a new trail or, or what was that like when he started? Well, his, his background, if he's if you asked him to describe himself, he'd often begin by saying, well, I'm an Armenian. Okay. Now, uh, his, uh, his parents arrived in New York at Ellis Island in 1915, while my grandmother was uh, pregnant with my father. She, he was actually conceived in, in the Ottoman Empire and born in New York City oh, wow. in 1916. And the Armenian culture is, is very old. It goes back, and it's mentioned even in, in, in Genesis. But they became the first Christian nation. Wow. And he understood that what set the Armenian people apart and what kept them distinct and what kept them alive through over five centuries of control by uh, Islam was their Christian faith. And he said, that's what, that's what made them strong. That's what gave them a unity. And he, when he came to America, he obviously was in, introduced to American history. And he saw in American history the fact that it was the Christian faith that had made them distinct. De Tocqueville's uh, Democracy in America makes very clear that, that the, the strength of America was really its, its Christian faith. And so uh, my mother once commented, about uh, my father, that he was more Armenian than most Armenians and more <laughs> American than most American, because he understood where their strength had been. And so my father's understanding was that, we, that Christianity is the answer, not just to personal problems, which was the emphasis in, in the early and mid 20th century, a pietistic religion, but it was also the answer ultimately to the culture's problems, because if you rebel against God, bad things are going to happen in every area, not just your personal life. And uh, his first pastorate was actually uh, a mission work to a very remote Indian reservation in northern Nevada. It extended into Idaho. He was 100 miles from the nearest town of any size, which were actually small towns. And uh, he was, I think, close to 30 miles or so from the nearest paved road. So it was a very remote area. And he saw the problems of the Indian culture as, as very distinctly an, a need of Christianity. And he saw a distinction there amongst the people on the reservations that the, the uh, situation with the Christian Indians was very different than the non-believing Indians. And that really drew a distinction once again of the fact 
of the 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 benign influence of Christian faith on a people. And so as he you know moved on there and he had he pastored a couple churches in California after that through the late 50s and uh, early 60s he wanted to do more writing and and so his his thinking was developing along the, these lines that our problems are because we rebel against God our mm-hmm. personal problems our cultural problems are because we're rebels against God so sin is our problem therefore what he came to realize more and more was the fact that what we have to identify is how do we serve God? How do we obey God? And much of the religion of the 20th century had, had devolved into a general pietistic religion. And he said, well, no, how do we specifically obey him? And that brought him around to biblical law and theonomy. Hmm. And he said, it's not the way we're justified. We're justified by grace through faith. That's the work of God. But how do we obey God? How are we sanctified? How do we increase in grace and do the will of God and further his kingdom? And that's where theonomy comes in. So in 73, he published the first volume of his Institutes of Biblical Law. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was known as, as really the opening salvo of the modern theonomy movement right? Uh, with the publication of that book. and then. Theonomy was really the methodology of how we actually promote Christian reconstruction. This, how do we begin creating a Christian culture amongst ourselves and eventually impacting the world? We have to have specific answers to the culture beyond accepting Jesus. That's just the first step. How do we then live? Right. So I'm very curious at this time. You said even though, as basically as he was taking different pastor jobs and he spent time on that reservation, I imagine for so many, R.J. Rushduni is a major influence on their lives. I'm very curious, especially maybe for er, uh, the early side that you're describing of your father, who were his major influences? Who was he reading? Who who sort of fed into to him? Well, that's a hard question uh, to answer because he was... He was a reader. He, um, when he died, his personal library was somewhere uh, over forty thousand volumes. Wow! And he was a lifelong reader, so he was extensively read. And he he didn't just read good books; he read the bad books as well because he had <laughs> understood what, uh, where people and where philosophies were coming from and how they argued, and he could uh, he could communicate those ideas because he understood them as far as uh, uh, so he was i'd say his his uh, theology which many people thought were, was something of an aberration in the mid to late 20th century right. was much closer to the theology that would have been considered normative in the late 18th century and uh, the presbyterians and and the sure. scholarship of the late uh, 18th century so he was a bit of a throwback, sure. rather than a ro- rather than a, a, an actual rogue. One of the major influences on him was Cornelius Van Til, who was a professor at, at Westminster Seminary. He was influential in the break of the Presbyterian Church in the beginning of uh, Westminster Theological uh, Seminary, and his presuppositionalism, which basically says everything starts with God because God is the source of all things. So our thinking has to be 
based self-consciously on the fact that God, uh, God is true. As Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. And so uh, Cornelius Van Til and his presuppositional uh, method of, uh, of, of thinking was very influential on my father. That's probably the largest, but he was okay. influenced by, by an, a number of others as well. He always had trouble when, when you said, what are the most important influences on you? What are the most important books that you would recommend? Because he had he read so extensively, it was hard for him to, to narrow it down. So it's hard sure. for me to, to do that as well. Sure. I, it's very interesting as you talk about his time on the reservation. Um, and even one of my, you know, the sort of one of the things as I was asking about influences recently was describing to someone who was asking about this Rush Dooney collection on Canon Plus is I said, one thing that's super exciting is he wrote about all kinds of things. He, it, it, everything, he seemed to get into everything, which is something I, uh, have loved for a long time about where I w now work, Canon Press. But I do think, at least in the twenty in the twentieth twenty first century, it's uh, somewhat unique to uh, maybe Christian publishing that you know I pointed somebody to the book on Native Americans and and the sort of a bloated government situation. We have that audiobook. Can you talk a little bit about? Was there anything in particular that he loved writing about? He wrote so, he wrote so widely. Well. Yes, he did write very widely because he believed the, the kingdom of God. We had to broaden our perspective of how to bring Christian thought and uh, action uh, to bear. And so he would write on any number of different things, always with the stipulation that he felt people with expertise in these areas should really study the word of God and the Christian application of their expertise and their knowledge to further the kingdom. So uh, uh, Chalcedon used to produce a scholarly journal called the uh, Journal of Christian Reconstruction. And we had all sorts of articles in there, including things like architecture and uh, perspective. And you know, we can see in the extreme sense that how much modern architecture really is trying to defy the laws and how much modern architecture actually is very impractical, but it's just meant to impress with the ability of the designer to create something different. And so he would publish things like that, even though he was not personally an expert in sure. architecture. Uh, he wrote a series of uh, articles on uh, a Christian approach to medicine, though he was not a, a doctor, but some of the issues that and, uh, involved in that and in, in a Christian view of, of medicine, because he wanted to see others pick up uh, the ball and run with it. Uh, people who did have some expertise in that. So the whole this whole idea of applying the Christian faith to our disciplines is is a little foreign uh, to our our modern minds. But that's what he wanted to see moving forward: is that people would pick up the ball and actually now said, "What does a Christian? What does Christian activity in my vocation really look like?" Exactly. Uh, again, a lot of this is because, uh, or a lot of my current excitement is because of what of what we've acquired uh, with you guys, with partnering with Calcedon. But there, it doesn't seem like there could be a better time than right now uh, for the works of your fathers to see, hopefully, like a big resurgence. As just the political landscape seems to be all chaotic and, and a, a very circus-like, 
can you tell us a little bit about what's going on, what you what you guys are up to at Calcedon currently? What, what does it look like over there? Calcedon has a small staff. We're actually distributed. Uh, we have offices in, in a very rural area in Calaveras County, okay. California, and uh, far removed from the more liberal large cities. But so we have a small staff here and our main offices are here and we ship our books out of here. But um, we have uh, people that work th- throughout the country. And so we're in, and to a large extent, our, uh, our production is uh, sort of a, done by a virtual office. Okay. But uh, we're, we call ourselves an educational foundation because we're lar- today we're largely in the, the field of publication because we, we still think that, that educating people and trying to get them to understand not all, just the worldview perspective on the Christian faith, but what they can do about it in their personal lives, in their family's life, and in their, their vocation and, and in their communities. I think one of the great areas of progress that Christians have made in this sense is in Christian education. When my father, one of my, my father's first books, uh, well, his second and third books were about Christian education. And his first book on education was uh, called The Messianic Character of American Education. And when he would talk on that subject, people in the, the 60s thought that was horrible just to say anything critical of the public schools. They were an American institution. And a lot of churches were def- very defensive of the public schools. Situation has changed dramatically. Right. Then, because we are seeing the, what my father referred to as the, the end of the age of humanistic statism. Humanism is failing in one area after another. My father died in. 2001, a few months before 9/11, and the world looks very different than it did then. But even in the in the 90s, certainly he was had started talking about the end of the age of humanistic statism because it was failing. Back then, its its failure in education was already becoming apparent, and in his lifetime, Christians had a different attitude towards the public schools. It, it changed because they saw that it was failure. They, they saw that it was not just counterproductive, but actually destructive of, of the Christian family. And our legal system is very different. When he began his more public ministry and publishing, uh, there was still a great confidence in the government. The government was going to fix problems. Uh, there was uh, this cult of science that if we could go to the moon, we could do just about everything. And uh, in one area after another now, people are very cynical about the world in which they live. They aren't necessarily turning to Christianity, but they are very cynical about the world in which they live. And we're culturally, we're, we're virtually at a civil war with ourselves yep. only without the fighting, but, but we're at each other's throats because we have so many problems. He said, the only way you're going to really address the problems and the failure of modern humanism is to turn to self-consciously turn to something else. And he saw that as Christian faith and action. So ultimately this Christian reconstruction he was talking about, he realized it's it's only possible through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we can in- initiate, but it's something that we can uh, self-consciously pursue as Christians. Where do we go as Christians? 
we have to pray for the, the moving of the Holy Spirit, because if it's all the work of, of man, even if they have a good worldview, it's going to fail. So ultimately, any improvement that we see in the world is going to have to come through the, the work of the Holy Spirit. But we have to self-consciously say, what does God want me to do? What does he want my church to do? What does he want my child's education to, to look like? What does he want me to do in my vocation to further the kingdom of Jesus Christ? You know, we don't talk too much about the kingdom of God, but if you look in the Gospels, that was the message of John, John the Baptist. We're specifically told that when John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus began preaching the kingdom of heaven. He was, he, it was his most common theme, uh, certainly of the Sermon on the Mount, but even the last week, uh, the crucifixion week, he was still speaking of the kingdom of God and what it was going to look like. So uh, my father's ministry and in in what he was describing as uh, Christian reconstruction was, well, how do, we, how do we further the kingdom of God? How do we act as citizens of the kingdom of God? He often described the Christian is a dual citizen. He's a citizen of his country, but he's also the citizen of the kingdom of God. And he has to act as a faithful citizen. And there's a responsible citizen with citizenship duties in, in the kingdom of God. And so uh, whether it was a theonomy or as in approaching different disciplines or criticizing false ideas, it was all with a view to saying, how are we now going to move forward from where we are? and uh, serve the kingdom of God as its citizens. Well, I recently had on an author, uh, his name is Crawford Gribben, and he, he, we had a really great time. I thought he was really tremendous. He wrote a book, and the name of the book escapes me. I'm very, very sorry. But he wrote a book for Oxford University Press, and it was sort of about this sort of evangelical uh, migration to the Pacific Northwest. And how it was sort of uh, very downstream of the Christian Reconstruction movement, and I, I don't believe that he is cheerleader for the movement or anything of that nature. He, uh, but what I really enjoyed about the book was he was he was a uh, honest bystander, just reporting what he saw and and what what seemed to be the facts to him. And one thing that I was very, and maybe this is just how bad discourse is at this time, but what I was. Uh, really encouraged by was the way that he talked about basically the intent of your father's works and how now these days a lot of folks will say these are people that want to sort of take over politically they're politically motivated and maybe even unto violence at some point if if called for it and I remember and this comes to mind as as you were just talking but I remember being very appreciative of of how honest he was that your father saw this as a primarily not a political movement, that it won't work if it's uh, sort of taken over by means of political power only, or especially violent power. Like It, it wasn't about that. This is a movement uh, that has to be founded through the Holy Spirit, by regeneration, through the kingdom of God. Right. And uh, a few years before that book came out, Michael McVicker wrote uh, a book yes. on the Christian right and my father's influence on it. And and uh, Michael McVictor came to largely the same um, conclusion that uh, correctly saying that uh, Russia really wasn't about a political movement or taking over the country. It was really a ground up you know, view of the, the role of Christianity moving uh, forward. And uh, 
both of these men looked a little deeper than than most. A, a lot of the criticisms, the religious right in general, or, or um, you know, my father in in specifically haven't really read him and, and they they prefer they're, they, it's they're the ones who are really taking more of a political yep. posture and a political saying of well this will make a good copy if we accuse him of this and so right. they really they oversimplify to the point of completely distorting his his message how, how is uh I'm curious just as over the years what you described a little bit of maybe shallow criticism what have you seen in terms of criticism over the years? Has it encouraged you to some extent where it's like, oh, people are really actually grappling with my father's views, even though they may not agree? Or are you sort of disappointed by the way people are interacting with your father? What has that been like? Well, it, it's interesting. I'll, I got to tell you a story. Back during the, the height of the, the power of the religious right, when the, the I call them right and left, even though there are limitations to those terms, of course. <laughs> sure. But uh, when the left was really scared of the power of the religious right, I, I was during the uh, second Bush administration, they were kind of grasping at straws. I went to a conference in uh, Manhattan about the problems of the religious right. And it was interesting. It was mostly older people at the time. And that it was really shocked me. And what was being presented there by people who were been prominent and criticized the religious right, it was that uh, it was a conspiracy theory that they were seeing the religious right as a grand conspiracy, and they were looking for some way to understand this great conspiracy and who was in charge. And interestingly enough, they they believed my my father was behind it at all. <laughs> And the reason they thought uh, he was behind it all is because they looked at different movements on the right, and some of them were about uh, education, some of them were against abortion, uh, some of them were uh, for for one thing or another, but they couldn't find any unifying factor in it. And they they found my father and my father's talk of Christian reconstruction. They loved that term because they could attack it as a term. Because they right. could put their own spin on it, and they say, "Oh, he wants to take over the country, and he talks about God's law replacing man's law." And so they saw that they developed this conspiratorial view, and anyone they didn't like, even if they had nothing to do with my father, they would say, "Well, Rush Juni's pulling the strings behind the whole movement on the right, and really behind at the time George W. Bush." They'd say it was really Rush Juni is the grand architect of the religious right, which is total <laughs> nonsense, total nonsense. But it was right. kind of refreshing to say that these people are just grasping at straws and they have become the conspiracy theorists. Yeah. You see, you know, the, the, we believe that God is in charge and not conspiracies, but that, that, that man is, is backpedaling because what he's done to this point is failing. And I think we see that in, in one area of our culture after another, people are desperate because they know what they're doing is failing. And I think now we're seeing that in very, very publicly all around us. Of course, of course. And I'm, I'm so glad that earlier you mentioned your father's book, The Messianic Nature or Character of, of Public Education. 
I used I used that book for a, a senior thesis, and I remember at the time I was writing because I'd always heard you know I had had family members or or friends that would say you know we'd never push a religion on my kids you know I don't want to send my kids to a Christian school because I kind of want to think I want them to think for themselves I want them to they would have sort of ascribed this sort of virtue of like coming to that conclusion on their own even though they were Christians and knew that was right they they wanted so they they saw Christian schools as sort of this sort of uh you know ah theological place and what I loved about your father's book was just unpacking over and over again that the founders of public education were they were not ah theological or they were not ah religious they were very religious in the way they talked about public public education was highly religious. And so I very, very greatly appreciated that book, and I'm very glad you mentioned it. Yes. Uh, that, that's a great title for that book. A lot of people really don't understand it, because <laughs> what does messianic have to do with uh, education and, and knowledge? Well, it doesn't. But it, that's the, that was the motive that um, statists really believed that they were going to create a better world. They were going to be the, 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 the messiahs. They, they were going to create a a great society uh, through control of education. And this was their plan early on. Education, they believed, was to create the kind of citizen they thought that we should have. And therefore, it was very philosophical, very religious, and it still is. And that's why we we can identify some of the, the, the products created by the, the, the public schools as one of the reasons we're in the situation we are, because we've had generation after generation indoctrinated, trained as these intellectuals, these progressives, uh, beginning in the 19th century, decided uh, this is what the product that we want to produce, and therefore the, our education is going to be geared to that end. And, and it seemed too, the, as much as I remember, and one of the ways that I wanted to uh, as I wanted to, you know, pass that thesis at the time, I wanted to give it to family members and and the rest. And I really, what what blew me away was kind of how eerie or how creepy sort of the younger years got. Or you know, like hearing about how ki- how they talked about kindergartners, or hearing about you know how how we need to get them away from from their parents as soon as we can. The younger we can get them, the better. Or you know, it just was all so eerie and creepy, and not at all sort of what's uh, maybe that conception, and you, I think you're exactly right. I don't think the conception I was sort of writing against 10 years ago was, is, is what it is now. I think a lot more people are cynical, but at the time it was sort of just this, you know, that's just what we do as citizens, which means I suppose it worked to some degree. I suppose the statism, that kind of propaganda of uh, neutrality worked. It, it does work. It just doesn't work to produce a good society. Exactly. Exactly. It's as I mentioned earlier. I don't know a better time uh, for your father's works to see more and more eyeballs. I, I it's funny as Christian nationalism, quote unquote, has sort of entered mainstream discussion and major criticism. It, it's it, it makes me wonder, you know, what a moment for your father to to have been here and speak to it. But the good news is, you are making sure all of his works stay in print. You're making sure all those are still getting to folks. And so people can can find that at your website. I'm very curious if folks had never heard of your father until this interview, and they're now intrigued, is there sort of a starter pack, maybe two or three books that you would say, this is where you'd want to start? That's hard to say, because it really depends upon 
your particular interest and what, because as you said, he, he wrote about any number of different subjects, right? Trying to introduce this idea. One of uh, my favorite books as an introduction to this, this whole line of thought and Christian reconstruction and, and Christian worldview that he wrote was uh, a small book called Law and Liberty. Okay. And um, much of that book just reads like a series of theses statements that he develops further in, in, in his different work. So I often recommend that as, as, a, as a starter, but it's, uh, it's short chapters, easily digested, but it's the kind of book where, again, you have to, you, you read it and you have to stop to think about what he just said. But uh, uh, that's, that's a very good one. But uh, he wrote books on in, on history. He wrote one on on science uh, called the mythology of science. And of course, if you're you're interested in theonomy, then his Institutes of Biblical Law are basically a description of what God's law really was all about. But as I've I've said frequently, I I think my father, because he had this big picture of all of life and thought being captive to Jesus Christ, that his the time of his greatest influences is, I think, yet ahead, and that's why we're keeping his material available. You know, when most authors die, their books go out of print because there's nobody there to actually uh, keep pushing them. Yep. They're not, yep. especially when they're not bestsellers. My dad has never had a bestseller of, of, by, by far, but his influence has been extensive, and that's because, you know, people who think, you know, pastors, churchmen, you know, who uh, people in Christian education have read his books and they've been influenced and they've influenced others. So his, his influence in Christianity in, the, in our time is quite extensive, even without selling in lar- books in large numbers. So he, it's the idea that that's important. And so we're, we exist to keep, keep these things alive, because I, I do think we, our culture has to address these issues. The church has to address these issues. And whether or not it's restricted the true meaning of, of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And so all these issues that have to be addressed and will be addressed, I, I think, uh, are frequently very well laid out by my father. So that's, that's why we keep these things in print. And we're also increasing the way that we, we make them available. So, you know, print, audiobooks, digitally. Uh, we're just we have thousands of uh, MP3s available on our website. Just a, a tremendous amount of information there as as a repository for the this message. Now, tell us again, just to make sure we have it. What is the website? It's the name of our foundation, which is after a fifth century uh, church council. It's uh, Chalcedon. Some people pronounce it Chalcedon, but it's spelled yeah. with a C H C H. A-L-C-E-D-O-N, Chalcedon or Chalcedon. And it's chalcedon.edu. Awesome. Awesome. Chalcedon.edu to get more. And now at Canon Plus, we have Chalcedon's audiobooks featured. So go digest it all. Uh, Mr. Rushdoony, thank you so much again for giving us your time. We greatly appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Jake. Cheers. Bye.